Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 20th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the decline of Tiger Woods and whether he should just quit golf forever and crawl in a bunker somewhere and go to sleep. After solving that one, we will talk to James Andrew Miller about what's going on at ESPN, where subscriber numbers are down and big names like Bill Simmons, Keith Olbermann, and Colin Cowherd are headed out the door. And baseball writer Molly Knight will talk to us about the Los Angeles Dodgers spending spree and the Houston Astros remarkable rebuilding. Stefan Fatsis is out this week is a thing that I used to say back when Stefan was on vacation. But back with me in Washington, D.C. is the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, a man who wished he thought of the idea of throwing fake money at Seth Blatter at a press conference. Yeah. It's Stefan Fatsis. Welcome back, Stefan. That was a good morning watching Seth Blatter react to dollar bills cascading toward his head. He looked like he had never seen money before, which I found implausible. He looked genuinely frightened, is what he looked at. Is he, he, at first, he pointed his crooked little finger to get security to come over and uh, escort the uh, British comedian who pulled the stunt at a FIFA press conference in Zurich on Monday. Um, and then he sort of like leaped back in shock. And it really is a, a fantastic gif. I watched it many, many times. It's also a fantastic gif, if you pronounce it correctly. Uh, That's an interesting conversation that we're not going to have. <laughs> but FIFA, though, I mean, come on, there was a good reason for the press conference, too. They're reforming. I don't know if you heard, Josh. Did you hear that, Mike? No, what? They're going to reform. They're going to set up some committees. Because of the money? Because of the to dollars? To look into reform? Good job, British comedian. That's what we needed. He yeah. needs someone to make it rain. Yeah. yeah. There's uh, going to be some task forces, too. Oh, That's Jesus. What, 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 what color ribbon will the panels be? Just, just don't tell me it'll be. It's an ad hoc task uh-huh, force, though. Okay. So I'm not sure if they've decided on a color yet. Uh-huh. I'll keep you posted. All right. I hope so Pac-Man Jones is making a rain was always misinterpreted. He had just wanted to start a task force. 
That's what that signified. <laughs> hey, Mike. It's uh, Mike Pesca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. He's in New York. Hi, Mike. How you doing? Um, the One of the uh, the Guardian described it as Sepp Blatter being deluged with banknotes. What? We don't know what <laughs> dollars are? Banknotes. Yeah. <laughs> um, when Stefan, when you were out last week, you listened to the show. Oh, yeah. Mike Schur was here. Um, Ken Tremendous from Fire Joe Morgan co-creator of Parks and Rec in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Love that guy. Uh, we recorded a Slate Plus bonus segment where he explained his philosophy of how sports and comedy can work together. He, and he also um, explained how he managed to get Detlef Schrempf to appear on Parks and Rec, which is answering a long-held question for, for m- many Americans. Um, that was a very good segment. Um, Mike Pesca and I liked it very much. We've decided to make it available as a free Slate Plus preview. Um, so look out for that. That sh- will be in your Hang Up and Listen podcast feed. We'll give you a, a taste of what the bonus segments are like. Um, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to talk about whether it would make sense to bring player loans a la international soccer. Maybe they'll talk about this in the, the Blue Ribbon Task Force. Sorry, the Unknown Color Ribbon Task ribbon Force. Ribbon to be determined mm-hmm. Task Force, um, right? The player loans like they have in international soccer, what would that be like in American pro sports? Player loans, they're not just for Freddie Adu anymore. That's how I'm delaying the <laughs> segment. Uh, to hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and the other Slate podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash plus. Freddie Adu on his 12th team. He's 25. He used to be on the national team, the U.S. national team. He was just playing. For, I got to say, just playing for the reserve team on a fourth division club in what was it? Finland, Liechtenstein. Yes, it was Finland. Finland, and now he is Finnish. The final round of the British Open is being contested as we record this podcast. Gives you a little bit of insight into approximately what time we record the podcast. A little inside information. If you're hearing me read this intro now, that means we have decided that the final outcome is not interesting or at least least it's not interesting enough for us to come back in the studio and re-record this segment, which I guess means that Jordan Spieth lost, and maybe we should be congratulating Louis Oosthuizen right now. Justin Rose, Patrick Harrington, Retief Goosen, Zach Johnson. Zach Johnson. These are among the other golfers that are probably not interesting enough to make us re-record a podcast segment. Phil Mickelson hit a ball onto the balcony of a hotel, though. That was pretty interesting. That was interesting. Phil is interesting, and congratulations to those golfers we do not think are that interesting for winning the British Open. Um, Now, Tiger Woods, that guy is interesting. Uh, As he was finishing up the second round of this major tournament at seven over par, ahead of just seven other players, ESPN's Dottie Pepper said that she heard fans laughing at Tiger's bad shots. He was at least a little better than he was at the U.S. Open when he shot 80 and 76 in the first two rounds to miss the cut. Or at the Memorial Tournament, not a tournament where you want to have a bad round just because of the name. Uh, that's that's an event he's won five times and where this year he shot an 85 in the third round. He's now missed the cut in two straight majors, projected to fall to 254th in the world rankings. The most amazing stat of them all, they ESPN, Jordan Spieth and Tiger Woods have played 19 rounds in the same tournaments this year. In those 19 rounds, Spieth finished 110 shots better. Than Tiger Woods. <laughs> Tiger's now 39, last one a major in 2008. At the same time, he did win the PGA Tour Player of the Year as recently as 2013. Mike Pesca, 
I've been reading a lot of grand pronouncements about how Tiger is done. What say you? And please whisper your answer so as not to disturb the golfers that are continuing to play the final round of the British Open. I guess to break through, you have to emphatically say he's done, done, done and dance on this guy's grave. But the fact that he was as great as he once was and that he's not as old as someone who with his credentials would seem to be. And also the fact that I think this is the biggest thing that he was the best golfer in the world, though didn't win a major, but was the best golfer in the world post-injury for at least, well, for one season, Mm -hmm. that to me says that the rules of caution and logic say that it is premature to say that the guy's done. Now, if you want to say the guy's terrible, yeah, the guy's terrible. And if you want to take a certain glee in that, yeah. But... The, the another big so the mechanism that he's terrible seems to be his swing what a swing can't be corrected and sure you could pick apart every one of his excuses but what is a golfer supposed to do like they mock him when he talks about spin rate on the ball what's he supposed to do say yeah i suck at golf and it's just because of sucking and the reason i suck is because of suckitude like that's what that's how he got great by thinking about things like spin rate and we know that he has it within him to have the greatest psyche of any professional athlete so calling him done Seems to be premature to me. A lot of prematurity going on out there in the media world, though. Uh, Shane Ryan, whom we had on the podcast, wrote about 1,500 words basically saying he's done. Um, It was a great column. It was a fun column. Didn't convince me, though. Didn't convince me at all. Uh, The Guardian said that he's the Mike Tyson of golf. Hmm. Hmm. Analogy was a little bit strained. Uh, Greg Couch on Vice Sports said that watching Tiger Woods gives him, quote, a sick feeling in your stomach that you just wish would go away. That column I thought was the worst because that was, that was, an, worst. That was an editorial pose. The idea behind that column was... He simply can't golf. No. The, That's uh, what Greg well, Couch said. That was one of the ideas. But yeah. another idea expressed in that column was that it's too painful to watch him. Right. It's like, okay... Turn off the television. Like Tiger, Tiger Watch has to someone quit. Else? Tiger has to quit because it makes you too sad. You? Well, he's not even on TV that much because he's not in the third round. Right. So I totally agree with what Pesca <laughs> is saying. But the interesting thing to me is that with all the reporting that we're getting, he's playing really well in the practice rounds, and he's play- he's played well in certain of the you know the pro tournaments that he's been in at the Green Briar Classic, the last one before. The British Open, he was closer to the pin than anyone else in the entire field. And he's just not able to translate that into the more important rounds, the more important tournaments. And there have been, I think, convincing arguments that it is more of a mental issue. Yeah, John Garrity in Sports Illustrated, uh, writing on on, on golf.com, I think, um, I thought made a very interesting argument about swing speed and rushing his downswing and very technical aspects of how Tiger's game is different. That his tempo gets messed up in the rounds, but not in practice. Not in practice. Um, And that's sort of the logic part of arguing about or talking about Tiger Woods, trying to have an intelligent conversation about what happens to an athlete's mechanics that cause some sort of breakdown during competition. It's much more fun, obviously, to make fun of Tiger Woods, to gloat about Tiger Woods' decline because he was a jerk to the media in the past because of his marital 
problems <laughs> um, because of the rapidity and 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 stunning nature of, of his, his marital problems of his marital problems <laughs> of his suckiness. But let's not forget that golf is totally different than other sports, right? Um, in other sports, someone decides when your career is over for you. Typically, you don't. Most athletes don't have the luxury of a graceful exit of a victory tour. I mean, Derek Jeter might be the exception because of where he played. Uh, Mariano Rivera goes out on top. You know, Brett Favre, suckitude for a while, jumping around, playing for the Vikings, look kind of bad, blah, blah, blah. Almost all of the greatest golfers have kept playing long past their primes. They get to decide when they quit. That doesn't happen at 39. You know how old Tom Watson was when he won his last major? He was 33 years old. You know what he did when he turned 40? He missed back-to-back cuts at majors just like Tiger Woods has just done. You know, when he retired, he hasn't retired. He's 64. He played in his last British Open this tournament. He finished second in the British Open when he was 59 years old. Jack Nicklaus won three majors after 40, finished sixth in the Masters at 50. He kept playing in majors until he was 65. If Woods doesn't care if he can't perform to the ridiculously high level at which he used to perform, why should we? Why should Tiger be different? Because he has a huge ego, because of the way he alienated people in golf, because he was so great that to see him fall so fast so far is so stunning. You know, does he really deserve this schadenfreude? Is he really Barry Bonds that we want him to go away? I I mean, I think that's what's driving it. I also think that just as during his entire career, if he ever broke a rule, since he was always on TV, he'd be the guy that, you know, you called up and say, this guy broke a rule. And we don't look at all other hundred whatever golfers on the tour and say, wow, that guy has really fallen from grace. I mean, if we we had the Tiger Woods, if we applied the Tiger Woods critique to a guy like Henrik Stenson, You know, this was a guy who was uh, pretty much tied with Tiger Woods on the money board a couple years ago. He's been doing terribly since then. Is Henrik Stenson done? I don't know. No one's ever even, or Heinrich Stenson done. No, no No one's even thought about it, right? Tiger Woods, I mean, the most important thing I could say is ever in the heuristic of Tiger Woods is he mm-hmm. got in a car accident with a fire hydrant and all this stuff came out. He got a little bit injured and he sucked since then. He not injured. did not suck since then. It is pure chance that he hasn't won that that he didn't win a major in 2012 or 2013. In 2012 he was the top money winner on the PGA Tour. In 2013 he was right behind Rory McIlroy. How long ago was 2013 guys? Cuz it's, it's two years ago, right? So that's it? In two years, the greatest golfer on the planet has certainly lost it forevermore? That's the, if he had won one major in those years, I think this entire discussion wouldn't be happening. Well, he has had a lot of injuries. Sure. Um, and back surgery is no joke. Uh, and he's also on his fourth swing coach. And that's the thing that I find fascinating mm-hmm. about Tiger Woods. An athlete that he's often compared to in terms of major count and in terms of how he dominated his sport is Roger Federer. And Federer famously went without a coach for a long period of time because he was so unparalleled in the greatness of his strokes and his abilities that what could anyone tell him that he didn't already know? And Tiger was that way too. And at the same time, he seems reliant on these coaches and obsessed with perfecting his swing and changing his swing 
to a degree that you wouldn't anticipate or that's strange for someone who is known for having the greatest swing. And he's now on his fourth coach, and he has had these periods. Uh, there was a period around 2003, 2004, I think, in between when he had a dominant stretch in 2001, 2002. He made all these swing changes, and he was really bad for a couple of years by his standards, and then he kind of came back and was good again. So it's plausible that you know, what he's saying, people mock him for saying, oh, after the 85 at Memorial, oh, just I'm get in close. that pattern, get in that pattern. It is plausible that next year, once he's not learning a new swing, then he'll be better. It's weird, though, that he is learning a new swing. <laughs> That's weird. But people forget, I think, we're not talking about someone who is number one in golf coming back. We're not talking about a Lee Westwood or Henrik Stenson or Luke Donald. We're talking about someone who was better in his sport relative to the other athletes by a larger amount than almost anyone else in the history of any recorded sport. And so to imagine that he might rise up from the depths, it's not delusional. It's looking at someone who used to be great, and maybe he won't be great again, but it's certainly not absurd to suggest that someone who's maybe one of the greatest athletes ever in anything is going to be good, at least good again and good enough to win a major tournament. It's, it's also not absurd to suggest that someone who has been swinging a golf club and doing the same repetitive motion for 37 of his 39 years and doing it to the exclusion of almost all other sort of reasonable sanity in his life, doing it with the the attention and obsessive quality that's required to become as great as anyone like Tiger Woods, might finally at some point, prematurely maybe, compared to other athletes, say, I can't do this anymore. And not being able to do it anymore to practice as much as you as he has to practice to stay at that level, you know, that might just signal the decline combined with injuries, combined with fatherhood, which people have written that he seems to care about and wants to be an attentive dad and be around for his kids. You know, those things can lead to a perceptible decline that may mean that Tiger Wood won't ever Tiger Woods won't ever be great again. And if Tiger Woods is okay with that, I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with that. You know, I don't think I don't great? think I don't think his kids will cut into his golf. <laughs> I think it's like the lumbar discs. I think it's more discs. <laughs> hey, you right, want we, a better you want a better example? Nick Watney. That guy has fallen off the face of the earth. I was looking at guys who are like top five in the leaderboard. They're a lot worse than Tiger. By the way, David Duval shot a sixty-seven in the third round of the of the British Open. David Duval. He's ranked like thirteen hundredth in the world now. Former former number one. Still playing. All right, we shall see. Last week, the news emerged that ESPN Radio's Colin Cowherd, a man who said that John Wall would never amount to anything because he grew up without a father and did the Dougie one time, is leaving the worldwide leader for Fox Sports. Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch said that based on multiple industry sources he spoke with, he expected Cowherd to make more than $6 million per year from Fox. My response to that is that John Wall will never amount to anything because he grew up without a father. That's the Josh Levine Fox Sports Audition. Take one, July 20th, 2015. Send my $6 million, care of Slay Magazine. Um, okay, back, back to the show. Uh, Cowherd is not the only big name to leave ESPN in the last few months. Bill Simmons is gone, and so is Keith Olbermann. Those departures will save ESPN a lot of cash. 
which could be important given that, according to a report from The Wall Street Journal, the network has lost 3.2 million subscribers in a little more than a year, thanks to cord cutter Mike Pesca and the 3,199,999 other cord cutters inspired by Mike Pesca. Joining us now to talk about what's going on in Bristol, Connecticut, and the larger ESPN empire is a man who, along with Tom Shales, wrote the book on ESPN. It's James Andrew Miller, and that book is called Those Guys Have All the Fun Inside the World of ESPN. Jim, welcome to Hang Up and Listen. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, The obvious first question here, Jim, is whether these talent departures are first and foremost about money. Um, That journal report said... And I quote, ESPN sees talent as one area where it can control its costs, and it has been taking a hard line in negotiations. Uh, So what say you? Well, look, I mean, the easy way to look at it, given the fact that three big names left in a relatively short period of time, is to create a narrative that covers all three. But the truth is that the three are, are wholly independent of each other. Um, they are, this was not all about money on all three, in all three cases. And anybody who suggests so is just not kind of viewing the whole picture. All right. So if you could just quickly kind of characterize, uh, maybe let's start with Cowherd since that's the most uh, recent, what was going on there? They wanted to keep Cowherd. They were very competitive. In fact, what Colin's going to wind up getting at Fox is pretty darn close to what ESPN offered him. Colin left ESPN because of creative interests. He felt like he had gone as far as he could creatively. He wasn't that comfortable with the creative team at ESPN, and he was looking to start anew with uh, Jamie Harwitz and other people at Fox. And that brings us to the other names here, Keith Olbermann and Bill Simmons. Again, these seem like different situations, uh, distinct situations, but hugely critical to ESPN in terms of the the, the company's legacy, its history, um, the people that helped build it into what it is today. Those things, you know, sentiment doesn't play much of a role here, it seems. Well, uh, let's take Keith for, let's, let's go to Keith next. Keith was not a money decision. Keith was a business decision. Once they decided that they really weren't going to put Keith back on SportsCenter as an anchor, the show that he was doing at 5 o'clock in the afternoon really did not work, did not get the kind of numbers that they were hoping for, and there was no real reason in their minds for for them to keep him. Uh, again, this this really, particularly with Keith, had no nothing to do with money. And he, it seems like he wasn't happy about going to five o'clock from late night and didn't really seem to fight this departure the way we're accustomed to Olbermann throwing tantrums and, and creating public situations. Right. I mean, I, I wrote about this, uh, for Vanity Fair and it was true. It's a, it's an outlier in terms of Keith's career because he took a lot of bullets. He was a good trooper. First, he was on 11 o'clock at night on ESPN2 and, he got bumped around all over the place. He got delayed by games. He got moved to weird times. Sometimes he was show was delayed by more than an hour, and he never acted out. And I thought he was pretty darn right classy in the way he handled this exit. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a different Keith. But at the end of the day, uh, the show just the show that he was doing at 5 o'clock, I don't even think resembled, the, you know, the show that he really wanted to do at ESPN. So 
he's moving on and they're moving on. But, uh, you know, again, I just, there's been an oversimplification about ESPN cutting back. And so this is why they took out Overman, Coward, and Simmons. And uh, it's just, just not true. Okay. And let's get to Simmons. Um, you wrote in Vanity Fair that you bet a friend a case of wine that Simmons wasn't coming back. So congratulations. Um, and hopefully okay. it was good wine. Uh, it wasn't as good as I thought it would be, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> winning is nice. Uh, I mean, look, here's the thing. I, I, I truly believe that if Bill Simmons had not acted out about Roger Goodell the way he did on several occasions, there would have been significant and serious conversations this summer about extending Bill's contract. They tried to extend his contract preemptively last year and the year before. They wanted to do extensions during both of those years. Uh, he said no. And I think that, you know, you have to look at the fact, look, money was part of it because they understood that this was going to be a pretty big matzo ball. It's an expensive ticket to get in, involved with, with Bill Simmons, particularly if you're going to be you know, the entire ecosystem for him. You're not going to break it up like you're, you're not going to give him like the web piece and let him go to TV someplace else and let him do this someplace else. If you're going to be the one place that he's in business with, it is a very, very serious number. They knew that. But the truth is that I think that it's no coincidence that after Bill acting out again about Goodell, there was what, 24 hours later, John Skipper was calling the New York Times to say, we're, we're going to cut him. I think that's that's a serious part of the equation that has to be considered. Can you can you assess were they wrong to do that? Was it a fit of peak? Were they making a financial decision that wow, this guy can really imperil, actually imperil, not just offend uh, a grandee, but imperil our biggest cash cow? Um, you know, were they wise to react so vehemently to this transgression? I think there's three headlines here. One is ESPN, look, Bob Lee is very, very tough on the NFL. Don Van Natta is very, very tough on the NFL. Outside the lines is a rich legacy of taking on the NFL. So it's not like they're trying to whitewash their entire enterprise journalism operation and not do any investigations into what the NFL does right or what it does wrong. But I think that one of the legacies of the Simmons era at ESPN is, is one of comportment. They are more comfortable with research and journalism that has foundations in either statistics or investigations and numerous quotes and everything, and then they're fine taking on the NFL. But if it's a guy with 4 million Twitter followers who's kind of like, you know, saying he's a liar and he lacks testicular fortitude and other things like that, that's when it becomes uncomfortable for them. The, 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 second, the second headline is, I thought it was very atypical, to answer your question, for John Skipper to react the way he did. You know, he's one of the savviest media executives out there. And I think the fact that he reacted as surreptitiously as he did, you know, 24 hours after Bill went on Dan Patrick and said those things about Goodell, uh, you know, it's no coincidence. I mean, that, that I probably, you know, if I had been on the payroll, I probably would have said to Skipper, keep the gun in the holster for several weeks. That way it doesn't, you know, that connective tissue between saying something about Goodell and letting go of Bill doesn't seem so apparent and so, so clear to everyone. Um, so I thought that was an atypical moment. But it, it shows the intensity um, surrounding that. And then I guess the third headline is, if you want to bring money into it, 
obviously they knew that bill was going to garner serious, serious dollars in the marketplace, and maybe they didn't want to spend all that money, or maybe they knew ultimately that they weren't going to be able to keep them. And so what better way to save face than to make a preemptive strike? But it's, but, hard, not to, it's hard not to draw sort of a big-picture assessment of ESPN's strategy and what it might be here. Is ESPN saying, look, we don't need the big names anymore. We've got the rights. We have the radio. We have the, the, the platform. We dominate everything. We don't really need big names to, to prop us up. Well, look, I mean, the word anymore you know, is worth talking about for a second, because for, for most of ESPN's history, the four initials have been more important than any personality. Chris Berman is probably the only one before Bill Simmons that you could make the case that was, you know, at the same level as four initials. In fact, in the early 1990s, when Oberman and Patrick were on TV Guide for the first time, and ESPN was getting noticed for their personalities like Keith and Dan, there was a real uneasiness in Bristol. I mean, the, the fact is that the guiding principle has always been it's about the network. It's not about the personalities. So, you know, this is not necessarily a dramatic paradigm shift in their thinking. This is actually an extension of it, which is, you know, particularly under the John Skipper era, you know, they have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars with long-term rights fees with college football and the NFL and other play NBA. And they believe that at the end of the day, you're tuning into them for live events and their product, not necessarily their personalities. I mean, Grantland, you know, Grantland was something that they were very interested in doing. 30 for 30 is something they're interested in doing, but make no mistake. If, if we're all to cut cords and ESPN goes to an a la carte, and they come to you and say, okay, from now on, you're going to be paying us $30 a month to receive ESPN. They believe that the people who are going to be spending $30 a month aren't going to be spending $30 a month to see Bill Simmons on TV. They're going to be doing it because they want Monday Night Football, they want the college football playoff, they want the NBA Finals and, and, and you know, all the tennis grand slams. That's but the, the financial pressures here are real, aren't they? I mean, the average annual fee for the NBA, for example, is going up from $485 million to $1.47 billion. And if you also look at that in the context of subscriber numbers going down, is it reasonable to imagine what an ESPN under that sort of financial pressure from Walt Disney Company might look like, how it might be different? Oh, absolutely. Again, you know, there are many different threads now um, in terms of a narrative to talk about ESPN. But I'm just saying that they are, they are definitely under financial pressure, and that has been rare in their recent history. But to look at these three talent deals and say, I mean, look, they made a huge deal with John Gruden, you know, within the last year. That was enough to make you a Bolshevik. I mean, when they have, and I believe that they would have probably had Bill acted differently, they would have been very, very competitive for that. They were very, very competitive for Colin. So let's just not make it so assume that because it's, you know, financial pressure from Burbank, everything else is, fits in under that narrative. So in the realm of sports casting, it's always been taken as a given that no announcer, no uh, color guy ever drew ratings. I mean, you know, Howard Cosell uh, definitely got attention and John Madden 
change the discourse. But, you know, I talked to all these executives. They're like, yeah, there's no proof that anyone ever drew ratings. Is there proof on the side of it that Colin was? I mean, we don't even have to debate. Of course, there was proof that Colin Coward drew ratings. And of course, there was proof that I guess Bill Simmons drew ratings or some internet version of ratings. Uh, why is there, why is this decision now going to make them more money? Why is the cost that they save going to make them more money than the ratings they drew? I don't, I don't know if it is. I mean, because look, part of the other thing is that you want unique content. You want these voices. So that's why Fox is signing Colin. That's why so many people want Simmons because you have all these pipes and you all have these, you know, these channels and what are you going to fill it with? And distinctive commentary is important. It's just that at ESPN, they believe that their arsenal of live events is what they really want to concentrate on. And they're willing to say goodbye to a Simmons because they feel they have so much else to offer consumers. But don't think for a moment that distinctive content isn't important in the sports marketplace because I think it's critical. And I think the Collins going to probably do very well for Fox. I think we can all agree the real victims here are Mike and Mike, who were promised that they were going to move to New York and instead are going to have to stay in Bristol, Connecticut. So, so pour one of, pour one of those right? bottles of wine out for Mike and Mike, Jim. I don't, I don't, sorry to uh, grab this, but I don't understand that. And I don't under, maybe this isn't even for air. I don't understand that Oberman was cited as being too costly. It's an ABC studio. Does ABC charge ESPN to use their own studio? Well, there are charges, yes. But it's, look, Oberman, if Oberman's show had worked, there would have been no talk of it. The problem with Mike and Mike, that, I mean, literally, that was one of the great train wrecks of the past decade <laughs> at ESPN because they announced it up front. So, like, they got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of advertisers. It's their big annual event. And the, one of the big headlines was Mike and Mike. I was there. Mike and Mike moving to New York, which I didn't think was that particularly noteworthy, but that's okay. <laughs> then they decide that they have to make a deal for Mike and Mike to go to New York after they've announced it. And those guys basically tried to put a gun to ESPN's head and ask for enormous increases in salary. And finally, Skipper said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to be the George Steinbrenner broad- broadcasting. Enough is enough. Forget it. And so they didn't move him. But, I mean, that was, that was, not, a good, that was not a good way to perform business. All right, Jim, thank you for joining us. Good luck in your future alcohol-based ESPN bets, and we'll uh, check in with you soon. Thanks so much. James Andrew Miller is the author of Those Guys Have All the Fun Inside the World of ESPN. As the second half of the baseball season gets underway, the Los Angeles Dodgers have a record of 53-40 and and a a three-and-a-half game lead in the National League West. The Dodgers' two-star pitchers, Zach Greinke and Clayton Kershaw, have a combined 47 innings pitched in July and have given up one earned run between them. That's a good thing, considering that those two pitchers are making a combined $362 million over the length of their deals. The Dodgers are at the top of the sports payroll list with an opening day payroll in 2015 of $273 million, $53 million more than the Yankees. Second to last on the list with a payroll of $71 million are the Houston Astros, who have gone 51-43 and 43 so far this season and are in playoff position in the American League. The Astros already have as many wins as they did in all of 2013 when they went 51-111. and 111. Joining us now to talk about these two teams and their team-building approaches is Molly Knight, the author of the new book, The Best Team Money Can Buy, The Los Angeles Dodgers' Wild Struggle to Build a Baseball Powerhouse. Welcome, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, that phrase, the best team money can buy, often used as a pejorative. 
But in the Dodgers case, it seems like the strategy actually worked. Spend a lot of money, get a great team. So the context of this is that a new ownership group paid $2.15 billion uh, to buy the Dodgers a few years ago. What was the thinking behind spending that insane amount of money? Well, they, they knew that it was a media rights deal. They knew the Dodgers' television contract was up in, in 18 months and that they'd be able to, to create their own network and sell it to the highest bidder, which is what, what they did. They got Time Warner to bid over $8 billion to show the Dodger games for the next 25 years. So they more than quadrupled their money just, just through the television rights. And the team's payroll has to be understood then in that larger context. Right. So would right. you say that it's, it's sane for the Dodgers to be spending this much more money than any other team? I mean, the results are being seen on the field. Sure. I mean, they, they get over $300 million a year just in television revenue. That's before any tickets are sold, any jerseys, any hot dogs, any margaritas. So, yeah, they, they, can, they can definitely afford it. Wait, wait, wait. They sell margaritas at Dodger Stadium? <laughs> they sell Micheladas, which are like blood, Bloody Marys and with beer in them. And people love them, and I think they're gross, but I just don't, I don't want tomato juice in my beer. <laughs> Topic of segment diverted. <laughs> Hijacked, you might say. Yeah. So in the excerpt from your book that's in uh, Vanity Fair, the, uh, the new Dodgers owners looked at uh, the amount of money that Houston was getting and saying, if the Astros can get this much money for their media rights, then we are you know, totally gold. So right. explain to us what the Astros situation is. So the Astros, they, they went for about, uh, I think it was $680 million. They got a little bit of a discount on the end because MLB made them move from the, Amer uh, the National League to the American League. And so the, right in the middle of the sale process, so the owners were like, hey, we, we need to, you need to cut the price down a little bit because uh, we, we feel that we're not going to get the same draw because we're not going to be playing the traditional rivals anymore, the Cardinals, the Cubs, those teams that they'd, they'd played for so long. Uh, and the, the Dodgers' prospective owners were looking at the, the media rights deal, and they saw that the Astros went for $680 million, but that their market was um, you know, a third of the size of the L.A. market. So they thought, well, just based on that alone, the Dodgers are worth at least three times what the Astros are worth. And you factor in the land surrounding Dodger Stadium – and the fact that they lead the league in attendance every year, that's another billion or two in gravy. So they thought they were getting a steal. And they were right. You know, I think of the Dodgers as a team that's winning in an uninteresting way. They are the best team that money can buy. I get more jazzed about teams like the Astros or teams like, I don't know, the Twins. I mean, right. I think that might be lucky. Yeah. But uh, teams, teams that, look, the Astros have had number one picks for a century. So, right. of course, some of them are going to pay off. But when they do, it's in an interesting way. The Rays win in an interesting yeah. way. The Blue Jays don't win, and that's interesting. <laughs> How do you feel about that, though? How do you feel about just getting some more jazz out of a team that's not, you know, spending Dodger kind of well, money? Well, I think, I think the thing about the Dodgers is they do play with a lot of uh, panache. They have these incredible superstars that are much more fun to watch, like a, like a Puig, a Granky, a Kershaw. I mean, these guys are, are riveting to watch. I get, I get that, though. I mean, they haven't won anything in 27 years, so it's not as if they're you know, exactly uh, boring in, in their, their winning ways. I think people are sort of like over the Cardinals, which is funny to me. They've sort of become the most hated, <laughs> the most hated team in baseball, even more than the Yankees, even though they've never had the, the, more, the highest payroll. I think because people are just kind of tired of the cardinal way and the, the best fans in baseball and all that sort of being lorded over all the other fan bases. But, 
Yeah, absolutely. It's super fun to root for the Astros. I root for the Astros. They were terrible. I was down reporting a story on their front office. I was down there for a year in 2012 when the new front office took over, and just just seeing what they went through and and their plan and how it's like working out now. That being said, I think it's still too early. It's going to be another year or two before they're really there. I I unfortunately feel like they're going to fade down the stretch, and and the Angels and, and possibly the Mariners or the A's can get it together, they'll they'll go to the playoffs. But the Astros will be there next year, right there, and the year after, and the year after. And that's really cool. I, I dispute Mike's contention. Um, I think you know, teams have money in all sports. There's money to pay great players. Sure, teams in big media markets have always had a, a distinct advantage or are going to approach the game in a different way. But the implication that all you're doing is buying goes back to the dawn of free agency when the Yankees bought players in one World Series, when in fact they were doing sort of a proto version of what great teams do today, which is combine the resources that they have with the basic skills that are required to to produce young talent and bring it up through whatever system you've got. Um, it, it, it's not as if the Red Sox didn't do that over the last decade, um, or the Cardinals haven't done that, or the Dodgers to some extent haven't done that either. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because something that's really cool about what the Dodgers, the new owners, did is when they came in, the team wasn't good, the farm system was a mess. They could have easily said, okay, guys, we're going to just take a minute, we're going to regroup, we're going to kind of blow this thing up and, and trade for strong minor leaguers and really build from the ground up things that teams like the Cubs and the Mets and, and um, the Astros did, right? They sort of, they sort of uh, sacrificed uh, the product on the, on the major league field to, to build, and now they're having more success. These, their crop of young players are coming up. The Dodgers didn't want to do that to their fans. They didn't want to make the team unwatchable for three years like those other three teams did because their fans had been you know, held hostage by Frank McClure and his bankrupt ways, and also it's Los Angeles, and you've got to be entertaining. It's the entertainment capital of the world. So they went out and overpaid for these free agents and took on all those Boston players for all that money. But they also were investing in, in building their farm system, investing in uh, foreign international talent and, and making smart moves. So they sort of had the best of, of both worlds. And once these, these, this bumper crop of prospects come up, I think you know, Jock Peterson, we've seen that. Uh, they didn't trade him last year for, in a package for David Price when, uh, when Ned Coletti, who, who used to have control of the team, he probably would have done that. Um, they didn't trade Corey Seager, and now he's the number one prospect overall in the minor leagues, and Julio Urias, who's like, I think, the number four prospect. I mean, when these kids come up, their payroll will go down a little bit. But they're still going to be the Dodgers. They're still going to spend. Well, we saw this with the Red Sox, as Steph had referenced, that it's a very um, potent combination when you have a smart front office and extremely deep right. war chest. <laughs> and But that, that's the cool thing about baseball, and I think something that the media does a disservice, and I think a lot of fans misapprehend this idea that since there's no salary cap, that it's unfair. But, you know, you see with the Astros, with the second lowest payroll, you see with the Rays and with the A's, um, the teams who are smart, it's it's not only that you can, like, have a fighting chance, you have, you know, a really good chance sure. to make it in the playoffs, and you're at a kind of a disadvantage, but... That just makes you more jazzed. Yeah, no, and I think that these. Teams, if you do make it, yeah, you're exactly right. I think I think that you do have to have uh, an owner who is willing to spend when push comes to shove to end those to add those like bats like what the Mets are going through right now. They have a phenomenal rotation. They probably have the best oh. rotation in baseball, but their owners have been cheap when it comes to adding bats. So they're you know they they should be in the playoffs this year, but they might they probably won't be unless they get some bats at the deadline. 
Well, the owners have been cheap because their their owners have financial yeah. problems. The the Mets are mildly. The Mets are a basket case. I'll give you that. But I want to ask you about. Are the Dodgers looked at as a team like the Red Sox were under Epstein? Sure, they have the resources, but man, are they also smart. Because to me, I'm not taking anything away from them. They signed, you know, they're being fueled by Greinke and Kershaw. These guys are the first and fifth highest paid pitchers, and they paid off. Now, if you look at other really high pitchers, you get Verlander. To me, the Verlander signing is just as logical as the Kershaw signing, yet his arm falls off, right? Mm -hmm. So this can happen with pitchers. You look at some of the hitters, Jock Peterson seems great, but Puig has been a nightmare of regression, and I don't know that Mattingly, everyone, the front office, has worked together to make him the best Puig he could be, like Manny Ramirez was made the best Manny he could be. So what's the perception of them, and how much of this is they're really super smart? Well, they are really smart, and the the problem is they came in, and and there were all these bad contracts. I mean, what are they going to do with... They, they didn't give Carl Crawford that contract. They didn't give Matt Kemp, who was great, but then had all those injuries. They didn't give him that, con- that contract. They didn't sign Brian Wilson to a, a two-year, $20 million deal uh, or Brandon League to that crazy deal he got. So they've cut bait with these people. They've, um, and, you know, they traded Matt Kemp, who was a very popular player who had a very strong second half last year, for Yasmani Grandal, who's been phenomenal and relatively cheap, and it cleared a spot for Peterson, who's playing for the Major League Minimum. So they're doing really smart things. It's just going to take a minute for the roster to reflect uh, their their vision. Because right now, we're, you're still sort of seeing parts from the old regime. But as far as Puig goes, I, they, they can try all they want, but he has to want to do it himself. He has to want to show up early it's on time, or at least, you know, not be the last person there, and, and work hard. And until he does that, until he puts in the work, then he's going to flounder because he's not making adjustments at this point. He's just reacting, and they, they know how to pitch to him now. All right, one uh, last question, Molly. We just, um, in our previous segment, we talked about ESPN and, you know, their subscriber base declining. Um, these big acquisition prices for major league teams being fueled by regional sports networks, is this a bubble that's going to pop. You know, we think that this looks smart. And I guess it was smart for the Dodgers to lock this in for 25 years. But is this something that, whether it's with the Dodgers down the road or with other teams, is this a sustainable course for franchise values, given what we're seeing with cable subscription numbers? I think that it is a bubble that's going to pop. That being said, live sports are still the only... Sports are still the only thing that people will watch live. People DVR, TiVo, everything else. If, If... People cut their their Time Warner thing, uh, or their you know their cable subscription. Time Warner will figure out a way to make it so that you can get the Dodgers a la carte, and they'll make you pay for that. So they still have a product, but yeah, no, they can't count on every single household in Southern California still having cable in in ten years or even five years. So yeah, it's definitely in a bubble right now. They were very smart. <laughs> Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Molly Knight is the author of the book, The Best Team Money Can Buy, The Los Angeles Dodgers' Wild Struggle to Build a Baseball Powerhouse. Now it is time for afterballs, and if anyone ever deserved to be honored with an afterball, it is the dude who threw money at Sepplatter. Simon Brodkin is the comedian's name. He plays a character named Lee Nelson. I guess if you want to name your character Lee Nelson. Simon Brodkin seems like a fine enough name for a character to me, but... I'm no professional comedian. And who am I to question the guy who threw money at Sepp Blatter? Wikipedia says he is previously a medical doctor. A medical doctor? The rarest kind. All right, uh, Pasco, what is your Simon Brodkin? 
Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the least exciting play in baseball, the walk-off balk. I read a couple of uh, instances where the walk-off balk happened, <laughs> happened recently in an L.A. Dodgers game. It was the greatest balk money could buy, apparently. Then I came across another even more ignominious way to end a game for two reasons. One, it wasn't a major league balk. It was a minor league balk. It was a single A, I think low A, we could call this league. It was a game between the Brooklyn Cyclones and the Staten Island Yankees. It took place on July 15th, so about a week ago. And in the 10th inning, it was a close game by all accounts. I've not been able to find video of this game. I YouTube Brooklyn Cyclones, and they're pretty good at putting up whoever sings the national anthem, but there are no highlights of this. And maybe the Cyclones, when you understand what happens, you'll find out why. Staten Island Yankees, similarly, pretty mum about offering highlights. I need to see this play. So they take it to extra innings. The score is 2-2. Two to two. The uh, Staten Island Yankees get a runner on base. think uh, some chicanery ensues. Then they have runners at the corners. The Cyclones... Remember, the game is tied 2-2. Two to two. The Cyclones pitcher attempts to issue an intentional walk. You know what's going to happen as soon as I say attempts. I believe one ball goes well. And then there is a hitch in the delivery. It is a balk during an attempted <laughs> intentional walk. Runner from third scores. Game ends. The Yankees beat the Cyclones. The Yankees beat the Cyclones. That's it. The, the greatest, worst intentional balk off I've ever heard of. That is really sad. There's got to be a way to top it now, though. You've topped it once. You've got to find a second way to top it. <laughs> Maybe the pitcher, like, stealing the ball and running away and the mascot's chasing him. <laughs> and yakety sacks providing the soundtrack. All right, Stefan, what is your Simon Brodkin? You know how Three Thoughts has become the go-to format for uh, for sports commentary now? Three Thoughts. Like Three Thoughts after the U.S. Three yeah. step victory drop. over Cuba. This should, be like, this should have been like a historical thing. You know, Three Thoughts about the Crimean, <laughs> Crimean War. <laughs> three Thoughts about... That's a good conceit. Yeah. I anything? like it. Yeah. Anyway, I got Three Thoughts about the Women's <laughs> World Cup. Two weeks old, I know. They're not very immediate, but Three uh, Thoughts. I just not, got back. It's not I a like quick this. take. It's a I like this. I've noticed, I've noticed this journalistic cliche. Here it goes. Here it goes. <laughs> All right. Thought number one. FIFA is a ass. Uh, it did not take a fortnight to compose that thought, but I remain astounded that games were played on turf, also in the domed wasteland of Montreal's Olympic Stadium, which was built for the 1976 Olympics. Its biggest crowd? It wasn't for an Expos game, Mike Pesca. Pink Floyd, 1977. The field apparently sat directly atop concrete. The yellow paint on our tiny folding metal seats at the U.S.-Germany semifinal was chipping off. The Soviet gray everythingness was a chilling flashback to the dark days of pro sports. And the funneling of thousands of fans into a narrow subway station was one off-balance drunk guy from a stampede of 10-year-old girls. Uh, also still astounding, FIFA's broader treatment of the women's tournament, ill treatment, that is. The turf, of course, the bracket being rigged in the interest of ticket sales and TV times, which screwed France and Germany, and fans who might have wished to see a more competitive championship game. The paltry payouts to the teams, which screwed France again because they didn't make the semifinals and uh, received less money. Our friend Mary Pallon had a good summary on Politico about the money stuff. 1999 World Cup champ and ESPN commentator Julie Foudy explained why FIFA's rationale for paying the women less pretty idiotic. FIFA had a year-end 2014 reserve of $1.5 billion. It should have paid the women more to encourage the sport's growth, not less because the revenue 
didn't justify it. Oh, FIFA having models in little black dresses and heels sashay onto the turf in Vancouver carrying trophies to be presented to powerful women athletes who just finished winning a world championship. What was that line in United Passions, Josh? Negroes playing football? Why not women while we're at it? Oh, my God. Two, the reception of the U.S. team was fantastic, but I have to admit I was kind of surprised. I can't say for sure whether that's my own cynicism about the media or the feeling that everyone was intruding on something that you were into long before. Maybe I just didn't like a few of the team's players. I like I that. Know. I like that band before they were cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, winning the World Cup is huge. Record-setting TV audience reflects legit growth of soccer and women's sports, but a New York ticker tape parade, 25 different Sports Illustrated covers. I'm willing to give everyone the benefit of good intentions here. The media celebrated the team for reasons beyond bandwagon, Twitter trending, and a USA, USA love of winning big events. Whatever the case, it was pretty awesome to see all those 10-year-old girls and some 30-year-old dudes with faces painted screaming on Broadway. 2A. Dissonance is a critical feature. Am I allowed to do 2A in the 3? I don't, I don't think so, but who's going to stop you? Who's going to stop me? No one. Dissonance is a critical feature of sports fandom, but parents still buy little girls' Hope Solo jerseys, and men still hold Marry Me Hope signs? the fuck? Three, not to get all luxury, but the 23 women on this team have a platform now. They absolutely should use their media capital to promote themselves and their pro league. But like the 1999 champions, they should do more. For the 99ers, it was girl power and participation and equity. This year's team should encourage those things, but its players should also influence the conversation about soccer and brain injury. Midfielder Morgan Bryan and the German she collided with lying on that concrete turf in Montreal, returning to the game a few minutes later, sent absolutely the wrong message to anyone who was watching. Yeah, FIFA's to blame here, too, and there's the win-at-all-cost athlete mentality and the reluctance to take stances that might alienate or contradict your bosses, but there's no reason the U.S. players can't endorse basic protocols and priorities for how to handle potential brain injuries. When in doubt, take her out. There's also no reason they can't endorse a ban on heading for kids before, say, high school and proper training to introduce heading and drawing a clear distinction between professional play and everything below it. Just before the World Cup, the BU-sponsored Safer Soccer campaign started by 1999 stars Brandy Chastain and Cindy Parlo-Cohn who said that she needs a GPS to get around her neighborhood, added to its endorsement roster two of their teammates, Fowdy and Christine Lilly. Not one current player has signed on. Doing that, helping to improve the sport for millions of kids who play it and the next generation of national team players, that would be a real legacy of winning the World Cup. Josh, what's your Simon Brodkin? Let me just say before you go, you really exploded the concept of the three thoughts there. You really, <laughs> you really, I think, stuck a knife in it. It's very good. You think you think the three thoughts concept is done, or have I ensured it's 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 lasting? No, it's, I think you did to it what Sergeant Pepper did to audio recording. It will never be the same again. Thank you, Mike. Josh, what's your Simon Brodkin? As you all know, it's that special time of the year, a month and a half before college football season. Yes, a month and a half before college football season, the time when you get your preview mags, your schedule magnets, your police blotters to see who's going to be available on the 2D roster this season. And of course, you've got to start thinking about who's going to win the Heisman and the Maxwell and the Walter Camp Award and the Home Depot Coach of the Year Award, the Doak Walker Award and the Davey O'Brien Award and the Johnny Unitas Golden Arm Award. 
the Belinikoff Award, the Mackey Award, the Outland Trophy, the Lombardi Rotary Award, the Remington Trophy, the Benaric Award, the Nagurski Award, the Dick Butkus Award, the Jim Thorpe Award, the Lou Groza Award, the Ray Guy Award, the Ted Hendricks Award, the Campbell Trophy, the Frank Broyles Award, the Lot Impact Trophy, the Paul Horning Award, and the Disney Spirit Award, and the Werfel Trophy. The Werfel? <laughs> the Werfel Trophy? Daddy Werfel? The Werfel Trophy. Now, the Lou Groza Award, fine. But the Werfel Trophy? The Werfel Trophy. But Josh, you're probably saying, please stop listing the names of awards. Or if you're more generous of spirit, perhaps you're saying, Josh, how can I possibly prognosticate who will win the Ray Guy Award for the nation's best punter without mm -hmm. watching the nation's best punters punt? Well, thankfully, the Augusta Sports Console has announced the 2015 Ray Guy Award preseason watch list. A list of 25 that incorporates a broad spectrum of football bowl subdivision punters. That was a quote, incorporates a broad spectrum of football bowl subdivision punters. Are you a Tom Hackett man? He's here. So are Austin Rikow, J.K. Scott, Cameron Johnston, Drew Kayser, Alex Canal, and Justin Vogel. That's right. Miami's Justin Vogel. A watch list is just like a terrorism watch list, except it's for people who are good at football rather than terrorists. I direct this observation at you, Mike Pesca, because the awards watch list is the leading indicator of what you uh, and I will now call the in the conversationing of America. It's in the conversation. It's ludicrous to suggest that we live in a society in which everyone gets a trophy just for showing up. What is not ludicrous is to suggest that we are in a society where everyone is in the conversation to get a trophy by virtue of being on a watch list. Who watches the watch lists? I watch the watch lists because I want to know all 48 players on the Bolitnikov Trophy watch list because I do not want to be caught unawares when the nation's top wide receiver is named. Marcus Kemp of Hawaii, I'm watching you. Keevan Lucas of Tulsa, I am also watching you. Jalen Robinette of Air Force, you can relax because I'm not watching you. Just kidding. I'm also watching you. I just watched him again. What is the point of these watch lists? The point is naturally to get publicity. And the more players that you watch, the more publicity you get. Because every school is excited to write up a press release announcing that their punter or wide receiver or a guy who best combines exemplary community service with athletic and academic achievement, and that is your Werfel Trophy, gentlemen, that they're all on some watch list or other. So that's why there are 63 players on the fall watch list. This is the fall watch list, not to be confused with the spring watch list for the Remington Trophy for the sport's best center, which basically means that if you play center for a college football team, you are being watched. But we have not gotten to my favorite watch list yet, and that is the watch list for the Bobby Dodd Coach of the Year Award. That's like 60% of the centers in Division One. It's more football. like 50%, but right. they're being watched. So you might say that all watch lists are stupid, because can't we just wait and see who the best players are and then give them the awards? Well, when you say the... wait and see, how will we know what to see? How will we know <laughs> what to watch? How long should we wait before we give the award? You're all, you're all making good arguments, but I'm just giving a counter argument. Couldn't we wait? Couldn't we watch once the season starts and see who the best players are and then give them the awards on the date of whatever award show? You'd have a point, definitely, but those watch lists look amazing 
And like they totally have a point compared to the Bobby Dodd Coach of the Year Award watch list, which attempts to prognosticate months before the season has begun which coach will do the best job during the 2015 season. This is not just in the conversation for the dumbest college football watch list of the season. This is on my watch list for the dumbest sports thing of all in 2015, which means it's automatically on the watch list for dumbest thing in the entire world. So congratulations. Good luck. And we'll see you at the award ceremony at my house on Saturday, December 12th, 2015 at 9 p.m. Eastern. Sponsored by Pizza Hut's Hot Dog Stuffed Crust Pizza. The dumb food we need to support a dumb award that does not exist. Who's on the Lou Groza watch list? I didn't copy that because I wanted to talk about the punters. Is there an Australian on the punters watch list? Or is that guy not you on ask, LSU anymore? You asked too many questions. This afterball had a one. There was no one A. There's no two. <laughs> <laughs> There's no three. You don't get three thoughts on everyone else's afterball, Stefan. <laughs> we love your feedback on Stefan's addendums to what we talked about today. Addenda. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to those stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. You can find us there. And leave us a comment and a rating. It's helpful in our battle with the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast. Come out on top. Were we ahead sports. of Orvis this week? We were like 27 and they were 28. We're going to have it out with them at some point. Their day will come. Uh, become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Today's show is produced by Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.